How are you? Yeah, not bad, not bad. Yeah, just trying to wrap up the last day, really. And also, I haven't moved back to Auckland yet, so yeah. Oh, yeah, so I just spent last night trying to pack up. Tick, tick. Stuff 2020. Election. Podcast. Hi, my Welcome. This is Tick Tick Stuff's 2020 election podcast for Saturday, the 8th of August. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. Tena koutou katoa. Three times a week, usually on a Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday, we'll be bringing you the news and some of the more unusual things about this general election New Zealand is embarking on. And then we'll slow things down to focus on one particular topic. There are 42 days until the election. As you may have figured out from the top, Labour leader and current Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern sat down for a chat with our colleagues, Andrea Vance and Luke Malpass. This is the first of our extended interviews with party leaders. That's right. We've basically handed over the mics for this show. So we'll get to that very, very soon. But first, Eugene, what's happened this week? New Zealand's 52nd Parliament done and dusted, all wrapped up. So the final pieces of legislation were pushed through, including the ability to charge some attorneys for quarantine, a tenancy law, changes to the way vaping products are marketed and sold, and the scrapping of a law which prevented family caregivers of disabled people from taking legal action over discriminatory pay policies. Hmm. There were also valedictory speeches from MPs who aren't returning. For a variety of reasons, <clears throat> 18 MPs packed up their pencil cases for the last time on Thursday and won't be coming back. The rest of them, well, that's up to you, the voters. You've got to decide who's going to be coming back after the election. The other thing that happened was what's called the adjournment debate, which is where MPs take the chance to say a lot of thank yous and speak about what they get up to over the past three years and to tell the country how good they are and how the other lot are no good and, i.e., vote for us. Funny you say packing up your pencil case because there are lots of school metaphors used around Parliament this week. At Thursday's 1pm coronavirus briefing, Health Minister Chris Hipkins kicked things off with, welcome to the last day of school. And Stuff's own Henry Cook started the day on Thursday with this tweet, Parliament buzzing with the last day of school energy. I am eating four hash browns. And what did he think of them? Well, asked by a fellow tweeter to review them for flavour and crunch, he reported... Coppers hash browns can rule. 10 out of 10 for both. Jeepers. Uh, Coppers is Copperfields, the parliamentary calf, and it's fair to say that Henry's tweet generated a lot of love for their Kai. All this making me hungry. Let's get back on track with what happened this week. National did a bit of a U-turn on previous policy and said there would be no tax cuts if they came into government. They also announced a tranche of infrastructure work that they would go ahead with, including a big Wellington Roads package with promises of tunnels and things. Yeah, there's a bit of a barb which gets thrown at Judith Collins where people say, you're only about the roads, but she seems to be embracing it in much the same way she took on the Crusher Collins moniker. A News Hub reporter asked her at one of the announcements this week, how many tunnels have you announced? Half joking, half, no really, we've lost count, how many? To which Collins replied, not enough. In coronavirus news and in a scene from elections past, a couple of former Prime Ministers, Sir John Key and Helen Clark, weighed in with their thoughts about what should be happening at the borders. So far, the government seems very reluctant to ease restrictions, but other parties, notably National and ACT, want changes. And there was an interesting thing that happened around masks, which created a bit of political heat and noise. So the government has previously said the evidence around mask usage was still up in the air, but now they've announced that people should stock up, just in case. 
and that every home should have enough for everyone. In another coronavirus-related news, there was an announcement about the unemployment rate this week, with people surprised the number had gone from 4.2% in March to 4% for the June quarter. It was a drop not many people expected. And when people did some digging to see what was beneath the figures, there was a lot of evidence of what's called underemployment, which is where people simply don't have enough work, many because their employers have pulled back on hours and things. Right, that's it. On with the show. Hang on, hang on, just a minute. Huh. I was on Twitter and I noticed there was a bit of a reaction to the thing we did about political book sales on Tuesday, where we quoted those Nielsen book scan numbers. So a few people were frankly freaking out because we'd revealed just how few books it takes to be defined as a bestseller in New Zealand. On the other hand, two authors said it made them feel a bit better about the number of units that shifted back in the day. Hey, just on that, a quick clarification. We said that Michelle Hurley was the publisher of Michelle Duff's Jacinda Ardern book, which is a bit confusing. The publisher was actually Jenny Helen, but both Jenny and Michelle are publishers with the publisher, Alan and Unwin. So I think we haven't started a world war or anything. Okay, that's it this time. Unless you've got any other interruptions, Adam? Well, actually, yeah, I do. Sorry. I want to hold you to account. You said on Tuesday that you were going to chase up Orange Guy to get him to come on the show to talk about the voting rules and other electoral stuff. Yeah, and referendums. Referenda. Ha! Stop right there. Thanks to Stuff's eagle-eyed editor-in-chief Patrick Crudson and Orange Guy, we've got the definitive word on this one. It's referendums. That's what Orange Guy's ads say. Patrick screenshotted it and sent it to me. Evidence. I don't really care. For me, there will always be referenda. In fact, I want to have it out with the Orange Guy about that. So, where is he? Yeah, still chasing him. He's quite elusive, actually. I tried a bunch of emails, orangeguy at aol.co.nz, something like that. I just can't seem to find him. Really? He's all over the telly and online. I saw a picture of him on a bus stop lounging on a couch with his dog and stuff. He really didn't look so busy he couldn't take our call. Hmm. I'll keep trying because it would be really good to talk to him, I reckon. Right, Eugene, we'd better hand over to Andrea Vance and Luke Melpass. G'day, you two. Good G'day. morning. How are you? Very well. We're good. So you guys sat down with Jacinda Ardern. Can you just set the scene for us a bit? Well, we are sitting, sitting in the darkened um, Beehive studio. The Prime Minister was late, having uh, wound up her last caucus, finishing off bits and pieces and getting a final sort of party sign-off for various bits of the um, campaign platform. She was straight down to business and she came, down went the handbag, advisor sat in the corner and, and uh, yeah, we were, we were into it immediately. There was no nonsense, was there? No, no. <laughs> she's a woman on a mission. When she arrived, she also said that she'd been very busy because she's been packing up. She she hasn't left Wellington. She hasn't moved back to her home, um, to her electorate in Auckland. So she's been packing up Premier House, where she lives just up the road from Parliament, all the boxes and all the usual stuff that goes with packing. So not just uh, dealing with a... Health crisis, you know, economic problems, COVID-19, <laughs> uh, running an election campaign. She's also trying to move house as well. <laughs> One of the things that you asked her about in the interview was around child poverty. Can you just give us a little bit of a, a quick background about why that question mattered? Well, so child poverty was a key plank in her uh, election campaign in 2017. Now, Labor set out nine sort of criteria on which child poverty was mattered. Seven of nine of those have improved. But the key one, which is material hardship, which is what most people would really consider uh, when you're talking about child poverty, uh, has not improved. Right. We'd better get on with it. Take it away, Andrea and Luke.
Welcome, Prime Minister, and thank you so much for being here. Kia ora, thanks for having me. How's it going? It's the last sitting day of Parliament today. What do you need to get through today before you can get out and launch Labour's campaign on Saturday? Well, tradition has it, of course, that we have the adjournment debate today. So we've had urgency this week, so quite a bit of really important legislation, residential tenancies, vaping legislation. In fact, that brings to a total roughly, I think, you know, close to 190 pieces of legislation we've passed. And we look back through the history books and actually that beats the record for a number of parliaments. So it has been a really busy term. Adjournment today, usually, I understand, or at least not for the past, I think, 18 years or so, uh, the Prime Minister of the day hasn't done the adjournment debate, which is really fascinating. But my view is this parliament has has been unusual. And so it just feels right to me to finish off here with the team um, to wrap up the parliamentary term properly. And then we'll be out on the campaign trail. So New Zealand's borders are closed. A, a pandemic is sweeping around the world. Global economic forecasts are grim. In New Zealand, however, life is a variation on normal. This is the COVID election. What does that mean to you? You're, you're right. You know, this is this is going to be an election shaped and defined by COVID. Uh, and it means that the campaign isn't what we planned six months ago. And yet, I'm very strongly of the view that that doesn't change our ambition or our vision. Um, in fact, if anything, it amplifies the opportunity. So our five-point COVID recovery plan tries to embed many of the things that we had an ambition, an existing ambition around into our recovery plan and, in fact, seeks to accelerate it. I'll give you just a handful of examples. You know, in 2017, uh, we did campaign on water quality. We've now created a regulatory framework around that, but we know there's a lot of practical work to be done on the ground. Sedimentation, riparian planting, fencing of waterways. It makes sense then in a world where you're trying to create jobs to then invest directly as central government into jobs that help accelerate that work. Are there a lot of jobs involved in that sort of thing? Well, our Jobs for Nature scheme does have a lot of work around uh, around supporting uh, the restoration of waterways. So, yeah, actually, it can be quite labour-intensive, some of those roles. Uh, likewise, and it'll look different in different places, but in Tairawhiti, it's, for instance, making sure that you're managing erosion. And so it, it has a double payback, really. I'd say the same for climate change. You know, this is a chance for us again to accelerate that ambition. You're seeing recently we've put money into a business case for pumped hydro. We want by 2035 to have entirely 100% renewable electricity generation. New Zealand is really blessed with our natural resources, and that includes our, our wind, our sun, our um, uh, the way that water can generate energy for us. If we are able to move to that 100% renewable, that opens huge opportunities for our brand, um, but also uh, for transitioning, for instance, some of our transport fleet, many, many other opportunities. So that this... Really, COVID, yes, isn't what we plan, but it doesn't mean we have to diminish our vision uh, and the opportunity that we have to actually do things differently in New Zealand. You mentioned the five-point plan. I thought maybe for people who are listening and don't know what that to is, to talk a little bit just more about. Just really quickly, yeah. tell us what the five-point plan is. Well, again, the five-point plan is about our COVID recovery and rebuild, and the first plank of it is is just investing and supporting our people. Um, that's all around what the wage subsidy has has done to keep people in employment. We saw, we've seen recently our unemployment stats showing the impact that's had, but it's also investing in trades and skills, making sure that people who are out of work have support to get into further opportunities. The second plank is, is jobs, jobs, jobs. So that's that investment in infrastructure. Uh, we're hoping to create 20,000 
100,000 jobs from those projects and also the Jobs for Nature scheme. But it's not just any jobs. We want them to be valued jobs that make a difference for New Zealand. The third is an ongoing investment in our small business. They're the ones that are generating um, jobs. They're our innovators. So we've got R&D grants there, the Small Business Loan Scheme. And we want to help them to keep innovating in this environment as well. We do need to keep enhancing our brand and be exporters on the world stage. So uh, that's the fourth part of the plan is just keeping up that international reputation despite our being our borders being closed. And the fifth is that idea of building back better, using this opportunity to make sure that we're leveraging for future challenges. So we already had a housing crisis. Let's use our rebuild and our recovery to invest, for instance, in public housing, in climate, in the environment. So you just said that you wanted, as part of building back the economy, um, you want a valued jobs. What's yeah. a valued job compared to a non-valued job? Well, what I mean by that is just the fact that we don't want New Zealanders to be working a 40-hour week and having a subsistent living. You, know, and, you mean and, well-paid uh, jobs? Yeah, well-paid yeah. jobs. Um, you know, jobs uh, uh, that um, that people can um, uh, uh, can live on. And, and this is this has been an ongoing struggle for New Zealand. This is not a new challenge for us. Uh, so, for instance, if you go down to Southland and have a conversation around what will the future look like once Rio Tinto make that final call and and uh, close down the smelter, uh, we don't want to be in a position where we're just um, bringing in any jobs to the region. They those Smelter jobs were high-paid jobs, uh, and so it is about making sure that we're investing in, in areas that are generating those opportunities as well. Okay, so we've heard from a number of prominent New Zealanders like uh, Helen Clark and John Key, Rob Fife and Sir Peter Gluckman, that keeping the borders closed long-term will cause huge damage, we know, to the economy, but also to social well-being. So can you expand on what the long-term plan is to repair the economy and to start to open up again, as the rest of the world is beginning to do? And when can we start to see that? When do you anticipate that happening? And this is where New Zealand is in a really unique position. Uh, our economy is one of the most open in the world, and that is because our borders have played a really key part in uh, keeping New Zealanders' health safe. And, and therefore, as, as a consequence of that, domestically we've been able to get back to relative a relatively normal state. There are sectors that are paying a higher price, though. And that's not just tourism. There are those where they are reliant on international skills um, to be able to continue operating. Now, border closures don't mean that we can't continue to allow access to that um, that workforce. So just this morning I was having a call with some of the very individuals you named around how do we balance those border controls while still giving access to skilled labour that actually then are leveraged for creating other jobs in New Zealand. We and, have where to did keep, you, and where did you get to on that call this well, morning? Well, actually, we already have a system in place at the moment uh, which has an exemption regime where you don't have to uh, be an existing uh, uh, visa holder, but you are deemed to be someone that is going to create those other opportunities or a sector will close down if you can't come in. What I think we need to do is keep stress testing that, that it actually is bringing in, uh, having the intended effect. Um, probably what we need to do is start thinking in terms of numbers. We've got roughly 7,000 in terms of capacity, big 
chunk taken up by our citizens and permanent residents. What's a reasonable proportion that should be going to keeping the economic well-being of New Zealand ticking over as well? So that's, I think, and that's a bit of work that we need to keep doing. We've got those exemptions. There's probably a bit of a room for us to refine them. So is that looking like a trade-off between perhaps opening more isolation facilities or managing the flow of New Zealand citizens back uh, so you make more room for skilled workers to come in. The vast majority are always going to be citizens and permanent residents because we have an obligation to allow our citizens to come home. This is their legal place of residence. This is the only place where they have full entitlements and the ability to live long term. So we can't create that barrier. Um, But it is about saying, well, look, within that... What, a, what kind of capacity can we create for those other advantages that exist? Because we are in a unique opportunity. Uh, you know, our film and screen sector is fully operational when in other places, in some cases, it won't be. There, there are chances here for us to build innovative sectors because we are fully functioning. And so let's use that. Um, I don't want to do that at the cost of citizens, but I do think there's probably a bit of growth that we can allow in that space. We do need to do it safely, so there will be limits. We've got the equivalent of the town of Kitty in isolation at the moment, um, so we won't be able to have... It's not limitless um, without there being risks, so it's about getting that balance right. So, so, so do those sectors um, need to start bearing the cost, perhaps, of bringing in some well, of they, those skilled they, workers? They already do. If you're coming in through the exemption regime, you are picking up the cost, but there is a cost that we still bear the burden of, and that's primarily the health checks. We do need to maintain a really tight standard there, um, and so that's something that we have to maintain that rollover. Just to follow up on Andrea's point about about opening up, now, yeah. earlier in the week you said, look, um, 28 days, no community transmission in Australia, then we'll have a look at it. Um, well, it's one um, of the criteria. Yeah, yeah, one of the, cri- yeah. One of the criteria, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, whenever Australia gets to that point, which at the moment, who knows when it'll be, months months away at least, um, when Australia gets to that point, will New Zealand be be ready to go? Yeah, so we've, we've already got the framework. We were already negotiating it and we're still doing that groundwork um, because, of course, we do hold hope that our that our cousins will be in the position to be able to do that. No one wants to see what they're experiencing right now. Have you, so spoken, to, have you spoken to Daniel Andrews not, at all, the Premier not, of Victoria? Not for some time, but I, I definitely did during lockdown and, in fact, even when we were coming out. So a couple of times I've spoken to Dan. I've, I've met him before, so we had that existing relationship and um, uh, it's, it's devastating to see what's happening in Victoria. And so, yes, we've got that framework there. Will we'll, I be ready to go at a time and a place when they're ready to go? Um, but we do just have to be so cautious because you can see how easy it is, just a handful of cases, and then before you know it, you've got 700 a day. And, and just to go back to the original question, mm. do you... Do you envisage New Zealand staying closed until there is a vaccine? Because the WHO have said that there may not be a vaccine and other experts are saying that we may, COVID may never go away. So there are a range of different, but there is a, a lot of emphasis on the vaccine as being the defining feature. But actually there are a range of other factors. Um, for instance, very little emphasis is often put on treatment, whereas actually effective treatment for COVID would of course make a huge difference, as would further ongoing developments around 
testing regimes and knowledge and evidence around testing regimes. The difficulty, of course, being the reason we don't rely on those solely is because the time it takes for someone to become symptomatic or the fact that you, if you test too early, you may not pick COVID up. So a combination of some of that ongoing research and evidence, though, treatment, even what happens with the cycle of disease. We saw SARS followed a very particular seasonal pattern. We haven't seen that with COVID yet, but all of these things would make a difference. So the vaccine is is one, a very powerful game changer, but not the only one. So there's a wee glimmer of hope then. So if yeah. treatment does, um, for yes. those of us looking to get out, yeah. <laughs> there is a chance that it, we don't necessarily have to wait for no, a vaccine. It, it would not necessarily solely be about vaccine. There's, you know, there is still some conversation over whether or not we'll see um, just, you know, rates of COVID and transmission come, come down. The impact of uh, testing that is faster, more reliable and information to accompany that treatment, combination of these things could all make a big difference. So as a result of COVID, obviously, big government expenditure, Mm. um, taking on a lot of debt. This week you've been talking about how the National Party would be a party of austerity if it came into power. Cutting services, possibly, such as health or education, in order to make their, their sums stack up. Mm. But what evidence do you have to back that claim up? Oh, I'm simply basing that on Paul Goldsmith's target around debt. So he's so obviously we've got really, I guess, the baseline that we were working to that came from the budget that essentially gives you that high point around the, the mid-50% range, then falling away um, over a 10-year period. But um, what I've heard from their finance spokesperson has been they intend to speed that up, that they have a target over that period of time to get from what would essentially be around the 40% mark down to the 30% mark. Uh, That represents roughly an $80 billion difference. So I can therefore only make an assumption that in order to reach that point, unless they have plans to generate further direct revenue, um, which we yet to hear any suggestion of that therefore would mean there would be cuts of of some description. So that's that's it's based on the statements that, that have been made. How come your government to date hasn't committed to some sort of a firmer debt target. Well, we've, of course, our trajectory is for everyone to see off the back of those budget documents. I guess what I'm asking is, uh, that's a trajectory. Yeah. Do you think there's value in having a target as something to kind of work towards? And we, you know, I actually think there was value in doing that as we came in, in part because of who we are. There was, we have long lived with the cloud of assumption around um, Labour governments, I'd have to say, I think unfairly, um, and fiscal management. And yet when you look at the last Labour government, I mean, they were the ones that got debt down in preparation for the rainy day that was the GFC, um, the strongest continuous economic growth since World War II, low unemployment, a really good record. As we were campaigning, it became clear that we needed to set some definition around what our intent was over debt management. And so coming into office, we said we wanted to get it down to 20%. We did. Um, That has prepared us well relative to other OECD nations coming into COVID. We have been in a much better financial position and indeed we will coming out because of that as well. So we have used those targets in the past. Now what we've said is here is our trajectory. We have, uh, in the COVID relief fund, put some expectations that we will ring fence that. We will only spend it if it's needed for our COVID recovery. So we have set out parameters, um, but also we've said that we, at the same time, do not want to be in a situation where the next generation pays the price of significant austerity. I was just, I, I was interested in what you're saying about um, 
Labour essentially know slaying the dragon that your rubbish at managing the economy. Um, do you think that people's expectations around economic management have changed and that they no longer value a government that uh, trims the fat and talks about efficiency? It's a really good question. That's, I, not, that's I not a good thing to say. No, I, 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 oh, sorry. <laughs> it's a terrible question. Yeah. Do you know, I, I do think that there's been a shift. I do be- absolutely believe that for New Zealanders, for whatever reason, it is part of our DNA, I think, to be very careful to be focused on that fiscal uh, the importance of of good economic management I careful or always, careful or cheap um, careful careful I think that the importance of that will probably always be central to the majority of New Zealand voters regardless of persuasion uh, regardless and I think that's you know I don't know whether or not it's you know I don't know is it southern Presbyterian roots I don't know what it is but I always think that will probably be central to to who we are as a nation however I also think we place value on well-being and I do think that there's a growing view that if we solely measure our success purely in those uh, markers that don't take into account uh, well-being measures, we now have a, a really complete view and, and belief that we pay in other ways. So I do think that's changed, even if that underlying f- uh, foundation of just being careful um, still exists. So do you think then that means that you will be able to be a bit more ambitious in your sec- if you get a second term? Because the narrative has shifted slightly and people do expect, I guess, more bang for their buck in terms of social wellbeing policies. I think they've always expected bang for their buck. Um, what I what I will um, push back against, though, is the suggestion that we haven't made significant changes in this term in that area. Look, I'll, t- I'll take child poverty as an example. One of my forever frustrations will be the lag in our data, you know, is such that we won't see for some time the changes that we've made now. But when you add up the five more than $5 billion families package, um, which included, you know, the introduced and the reintroduction of basically a university universal child payment, um, the winter energy payment, um, when you add an indexation of benefits, which has a has the ability to transform, uh, I think, the social, the well-being of our families over time, the cumulative effect of those changes will mean that some families and some on sole parent payments could be upwards of, you know, 60% better off than they had been depending on where they live. So those those have been significant. So putting more cash in people's pockets yeah. to help support their children yep. is what you're saying. Yep. And that, and we had a, a real focus on that because when you when you are data driven, then you look at where you'll make the biggest difference. But it does mean sometimes it'll be a combination of policies that get you that magnitude of change. But because it isn't in one go, one policy and one budget, sometimes that cumulative effect is lost. So my view is this will be a government that will make a significant difference to things like child poverty, even if it may not always have been through that one moment. I know it's fair to say that you met the targets that you set, I think, in February on child poverty. On track. It's, it's on a track, bit yeah. too early to say, um, just because of the lag from the household um, surveys. But I think it's probably fair enough to say that some of those gains will be lost because of COVID. Yeah. And <clears throat> probably more children will be materially worse off. Particularly material deprivation. That's So we've got a range of measures we use, the um, uh, almost the distortionary effect of just using income is because it's a relative um, uh, uh, measure. If everyone's worse off, then it that affects your child poverty measures. That's why the material deprivation one is so important to us. It just, it tells us 
you know, of those basic things that you expect every family to have, do they have them? And that is where um, shocks like this really show up. And so, again, it'll take us a while to see it, but we've anticipated, which is why we move straight away to extend things like food and schools, because those material wants, basics like you know, food, we wanted to respond to what we anticipated would happen because we can learn from the GFC and we know that had an impact. Mm. It's fair, though, to argue that kids are still going to school without shoes, they're still going without glasses, they're still hungry, you've still got families living in garages. Are you frustrated that you haven't managed to fix that quickly? I'm not finished. So that would be the one thing I'd say is I'm, I'm never going to be satisfied if there's any child who's living in circumstances that actually, frankly, New Zealanders would be ashamed of. So I, I absolutely, there is more work to do. Um, I don't think I ever believed for a moment that we would be able to, in the two years, 10 months we've been in, create change that has been compounded over a series of decades. But I do believe that we've created the framework, the groundwork that, that was needed. And as I've said, some of particularly sole parents um, are substantively, um, more so than any government we've seen in decades, better off through the changes that we've made. But I do want the chance to keep going. Do you? So if you were re-elected, would you, would you have an expectation that by the end of next term you would be seeing the, you would be seeing some significant fruit from these changes? Yeah, well, again, the, the way we measure fruit, as it were, is through these surveys that, much to much uh, frustration from us, have these long lag times. So we only have one now that has even partially captured working for families changes that we put in in the first 100 days. And that's how we know that we're broadly on track um, to, to lift, you know, between 15,000 and 70,000 children out of poverty through that work. That doesn't take into account the $25 increase in, um, uh, in main benefit rates that we've also introduced. It's not that yet came, picking that, up. Now, that was, that was announced when all the, uh, when the wage stuff, subsidy yep. and when the COVID stuff it happened, It doesn't right? yet pick yep. up things like ongoing indexation changes, um, which are substantively more than CPI adjustments. So we, we won't see it for a while. But, you know, as someone that reads letters that I get, and particularly from kids, um, uh, the fruits, I guess, for me, the letter I got recently of children that wrote about the impact of food in schools on other children as they observed it. There was one that stood out to me. It was a child that said that she was happy that her friend, who she could always tell was hungry but never admitted she was, was happier now. And that, for me, is the fruits of what we're doing. It's cute. Um, That's why I always read those letters. Yeah, we amazing. know you do. <laughs> you like to read them out to us. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, so I want to um, change subject again. And mm. I apologise, this is a long question just to set some context. But the Simpson report yeah. um, proposes a huge upheaval of the health bureaucracy, stripping out the ministry, reducing the number of DHBs yeah. uh, to maybe as few as eight and appointing uh, boards in Wellington rather than locally elected. Is that what we're going to see from you post the election, assuming you win? Um, and do you need to be more explicit about that to ensure that you have a mandate to make such a big change? Yeah, and look, with the Simpson review, um, what I would say is that we are committed to implementing the review. Now, while we haven't gone through and ticked off individual recommendations, our view is that, broadly speaking, um, it has demonstrated where the change is needed. COVID taught me many things, but one of the things it taught me is that our system uh, does not serve our population base as it needs to right now. The DHBs do need to be reduced. 
we do need to make sure that every community is well served with the experience on boards and, and look we have some fantastic serving DHB members but in other areas we haven't always had the mix of skill sets that are required for such an intense governance um, uh, uh, expectations. Prime Minister, did that become apparent to you when early on the information flow out of the DHBs on just how much kit they had? And yes, that was mean, one. Was that one of, what's that some, was one yeah, of them? What were some of the other things well, that really made you... Some of that, that was really beforehand. You, yep. you know, even the fact that, for instance, no one will believe it's right that where you live in New Zealand depends on the variation or the quality of, of the experience you have in the health system. And yet that's, that's one of the issues that we have. No one would think that it's right that if you're Māori in New Zealand, just by default, your health stats will be worse on almost everything, except with the exception under cancers of melanoma. That is it. And so no one, I think, thinks that's reasonable. And yet our system uh, in some ways uh, can exacerbate some of those issues. So yes, COVID put an extra layer on distribution of PPE was there were difficulties there, obviously, although that you know, relative to what DHB asked of them was probably a smaller piece. Um, even the way pe- our public health units um, and the, where they sit within our structures, there are a number of issues that demonstrated the strength of our health system, but also where we need to do more. But we've known that for, I guess, as long as I've been in New Zealand, we've known that the health system was inefficient for a very long time. Did you really need... Um, an almost three-year report to get to that point. Couldn't you have started this work earlier? I'm not going to, for a moment, dismiss or diminish the complexity of our health system. I actually do not believe that we could have done adequate justice to this work had we tried to do it ourselves, Um, particularly because it's only natural that when you work within the system, you choose to be fairly defensive of it. We did need something, you know, a group, I think, that had the expertise and the willingness to to bring a lens of, you know, criticism that we might not have been able to do had we let it out of the Ministry of uh, Health, which are full of fantastic people, but just a bit of distance helps. It's a bureaucratic overhaul, really, that's proposed in the Simpson report. Um, will it really give us the transformation that you and David Clark um, and I guess Annette King promised us in 2017? I don't think that I would... I, I don't know that I consider it a bureaucratic overhaul as such because it is, you know, the starting point for all of this is what's happening for people's healthcare on the ground. And so um, if it only uh, ends up feeling principally bureaucratic, then it won't make those necessary changes. Well, bureaucratic in, in the sense that the governance, the governance arrangements yeah. are going to change first and then presumably yep. you hope there's better performance will flow. Yeah, and, and there are some things that actually we are thinking about how we can do it in reverse a little bit so that we don't we aren't waiting for that flow. Um, so that's something that we're thinking about at the moment, yeah. Uh, on the pointier political end of that, uh, a lot of people, as you say, are very uh, defensive of DHBs, yeah. you know, say local democracy and our hospitals. Uh, on the other side of that debate are people who, when they go to vote in local government yeah. elections, look down the list of names and don't have a clue who the hell they're voting mm. for. Um, it seems to me that if you try and progress with this, this will actually be the, di- the most difficult thing because people will feel rightly or wrongly that they might be disenfranchised. How do you plan to assuage people's fears that, I guess, health isn't going to become more centralised 
and less personable because they don't have their detached bees anymore. You know, if we think about this... What do people through, not care? Yeah. Oh, I think people always care. Um, but you're right, there's varying degrees and these different opinions. But I think probably if we look to even um, the discussion around what we're trying to do with our vocational education reforms and what we're doing with politics, there's an example where we're trying to get the benefit of a centralised structure that has a regional and a local voice around it that says, actually, here's the skills needs we have in our area. Um, this is how we need to respond to our local businesses and community. Uh, and those groups, those bodies, they will be localised, but they're not a, they're not locally elected, but they, they are there to represent that, that local and regional view. You know, so I see that in, in the same way for, for DHBs. I do think it's really important that we have that local lens, that we have that understanding of that local population base, but there are multiple ways we can achieve that. And I think as long as people feel confident we're doing that, that'll, make, that'll be the difference. So there's a perception among some voters um, that Labour has abandoned the South Island. You might have seen some of the Facebook memes um, with much less investment in infrastructure and jobs than in other places, such as Northland, where the PGF has you know, invested a substantial amount of, in grants rather than loans. Um, and also a perception that uh, you re- have rarely visited outside of election year and your visits to Christchurch last year. Why Why is that? Are there, are there not enough votes for you in the South Island? Oh, well, I would not accept that premise at all. I've only recently returned from Invercargill. I have visited Christchurch many times. I, I, so I, would, I think I would push back on that. But again, that's election it, year and Christchurch obviously was a different circumstance. Outside of again, those things. But again, regardless, regardless, I would you know happily, happily stand up the different reasons that I've been. And I'm always very mindful of the election year meme, this idea of visits. My last visit to Invercargill was a direct response to what was happening in TY. I hadn't planned to be down there at that point although the last time I did go down to open the fourth pot line down there, I felt an immediate need to be there to respond to what was going on in the ground. Um, obviously, floods have brought us down there doing visits to see what's needed and required there. And for the PGF funding, you know, we, uh, in fact, one of the other reasons I was down is we, of course, had PGF funding recently for the Invercargill Town Centre redevelopment and so on. You know, I have heard that and I don't want to be too defensive because I do think that we need to always be mindful of making sure that we are looking across the country at where, um, where there are opportunities, where investment opportunities exist alongside communities. And so where that's raised, I will always look at that um, with an open mind and say, look, have we been as even in our distribution as we should be? But we've also tried to apply the lens of where is our greatest unemployment? Where are the social determinants telling us we need to go? And so that's also in large part why those decisions are being made. And, that, and that's fair enough. I understand, obviously, Northland mm. has had the bulk of PGF and obviously the need is great there. But in the South Island, the investment is less. Much of it has been loans rather than grants. And also... Although those they, have been uh, commercial. Keeping in mind, I mean, uh, obviously a particular milk company had put up a grant. We've had mining um, uh, investments there. That, that has often been because there have been commercial opportunities that were always more uh, loan rather than grant opportunities. And yeah. also the the funding, a lot of the funding has gone into tourism projects mm-hmm. such as the ferry terminal uh, investment on the West Coast. And there is a feeling that it needs to be more flexible, that obviously investing in tourism at the moment is probably 
not sure. going to give uh, the greater well, keep need. In, keep in mind, of course, that PGF investment is really often shaped by the community. So it's our regional economic development agencies and local government often, and iwi, that will generate proposals that come to us. It's not a, it's not a case that the provincial growth unit goes into a community and says, we've determined a project for you. So we are being responsive to what's being brought to us. Early on, you're right, in the West Coast particularly, um, cycle trails and different opportunities were presented. They were the community was very keen on on uh, these investments, and we supported them. We do need to pivot. Um, we have done that in other areas, and so we're very open to to doing that in in the South Island as well, because we are in a different environment. But I would be mindful that actually some of our most frequented, uh, I understand, domestic uh, tourism opportunities have been things like New Zealanders going out into our cycleways. Just really briefly on that, the Auditor General was pretty scathing of the PGF this week in a report. Are you uh, minded to fix those? Uh, criticisms and yeah. reshape it? Yes, so this is the third report we've had um, and every time we've picked up and responded. In fact, the Auditor General has noted that we've been really positive in, in responding to the issues they've raised and the three recommendations I've made this time we will also implement. You didn't get a capital gains tax up. Light rail in Auckland hasn't started. Kiwi build was reduced to a shadow of its original ambition. What would you put as the biggest regret or failure or thing you didn't get done in this term of government? I will never regret trying to make substantive change for New Zealand when we face a crisis. So KiwiBuild, no, KiwiBuild didn't achieve what we wanted it to. Um, That still hasn't stopped us having the largest government building programme since the 1970s. And I do think we were right to say, actually... Let's scale up that investment in our state housing. Uh, so we've we've grown that ambition even from where we started when we came in. You know, we were talking about six thousand four hundred houses. We're now talking about eighteen thousand places by twenty. So sort of Kiwi Build was sort of put to one side, and you said actually we're better at doing state houses. Let's put our energy into that. Yeah, we did. We did reorientate, and I think we we responded to what we saw. We responded to the lessons we learned. I don't regret trying, um, but we also have to be willing to change. And you know, it wasn't working, so we did change. There is still a role for it and it still is building houses uh, and it is still providing first home buyers opportunities they otherwise wouldn't have. But, you know, we've always we've always got to learn, um, but we've always got to be willing to try as well. I guess some commentators have called it the policy-free election, even though the campaign well, hasn't started. Even though started. we haven't even, you, you, we haven't even launched I, the campaign yet. I was going to give you the chance to rebut that, and clearly you, you just did. Yeah, I do feel quite strongly about that because, you know, we're six weeks out, We the House is still sitting, we're still governing, and we will do until the day of the election. There will be policy. The one thing that I have put some caveats around is just we have just spent an enormous amount investing in New Zealand in our recovery and rebuild. That does mean that it will have an impact on the policy programme, but there will be policy. Thank God for that. (laughs) Last one, just the last one from me. Um, There seems to be both a sense of collective relief, but also a minor level of sort of collective trauma, if you like, from the lockdown and and what the whole community, what the whole country has gone through. I was actually just wondering, how have you personally found the experience of going through that and coming out the other side? What are the things that that you've been surprised by and what are the things that you found the hardest? I think probably I would say that I don't feel I've come out the other side yet uh, because COVID will be with us for a very long time. And so uh, the management of our health and our economic response is still there every day. Every day I get a text message in the morning telling me how many tests we've had. 
how many cases we have, where they are, the details of them. Um, every day I'm pushing on what we're doing around surveillance and community testing. I can tell you every detail of the positives that we've had in those offshore centres because the management of this is ongoing every single day. So I can't reflect on that yet because I'm still in the middle of it. <laughs> Well, that about wraps it up for our First Leaders interview of the campaign season. Prime Minister, thank you again for being with us as the campaign gets underway. That's the Tick Tick podcast for Saturday the 8th of August. I'm Adam Dudding, he's Eugene Bingham, they were Andrea Vance and Luke Malpass. Thank you to Jacinda Ardern, Jack Price, Catherine George, Patrick Coots and John Hartevelt and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms and if you want to get in touch with us, you can email ticktick at stuff.co.nz. And if you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, you can find a link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. That is the end of our first week of the Tick Tick podcast. Thank you for all your support. We'll be back next week on Tuesday, 5am. Ka kite anō.